This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh people. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is October 29th, 2020, and this is episode 213. I'm Scott Delenaboom. And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, research co-pollster Mario Canseco joins us to break down the preliminary results of the BC election and his own exit poll that they released today. Thanks, of course, to the 104 people who contribute to the show every month. Thanks to our newest patron, William. We are going to continue podcasting past the election. We'll tell you what happens in a few weeks when we know the final results and we will keep uh, tabs on the government, the opposition and everything happening provincially and federally. Keep us going at patreon.com slash politicoast. And Politicoast, as always, is in partnership with BC Today, British Columbia's daily newsletter dedicated exclusively to BC politics. Sign up for a free trial to have unique coverage of the BC legislature delivered to your inbox every morning. Listeners to Politicoast enter the offer code CITIZEN for access to a special rate your free two-week trial of the newsletter, go to politicstoday.news slash free dash trial. Let's jump into our main discussion, Orange Coast. We're joined by pollster Mario Canseco from Research Co. to talk about the results of the BC election, at least the preliminary results that we all watched come in last weekend. Of course, patrons got to discuss it live with us in our Slack Join at patreon.com slash politicoast if you want to get in on those discussions. We've been taking a little bit of a rest since then. We still have to wait for about a third of the ballots to come in, but let's get into it. And I think the first thing that's the de- most depressing result maybe was that barely half of British Columbians seem to have turned out to vote. Yeah, it's a very low number, especially when we compare it with other elections that we've had recently. Uh, similar situation in Saskatchewan, where it might be hovering between 50 and 53 percent, depending on how many mail-in ballots are still outstanding. So not ideal. Definitely one of the byproducts of the pandemic election is people not becoming as engaged as they used to, partly because of the intricacies of the campaign. Nobody's knocking on your door. Nobody's uh, asking you to go to a gym or a town hall meeting. And that definitely plays a role in the fact that we saw fewer voters this time around than in 2017. I would have actually been surprised if we seen turnout remain the same for all the reasons you just mentioned. I should mention that does include the 1.2 million people that voted on election day or in advance polls and the 600,000 ballots left to be counted. So between all of that, 1.8 million people voting out of an eligible, I think, three and a half, roughly million. Elections BC released the the data, I think on Sunday or Monday. I ran a quick calculation on Twitter on Saturday and they both said about 52%. So yeah, historic low. Good job, BC. But nevertheless, clear result on Saturday night, at least, even with a third of ballots remaining, that the NDP won a clear majority government, as they were hoping for. How good did they do? 
Well, I think they did remarkably well. There was an expectation that the vote count would be a little bit closer, that we wouldn't have the trends in order to actually call the election on election night. And the numbers, as they started to come in, really suggested that there was a shift, especially in areas where the liberals used to do very well. We were lucky enough to do specific targeted polling in the Fraser Valley, and we saw that the situation there was going to be close between the two parties. And ultimately, I think what we saw was a little bit of that, certain shifts, uh, demographic shifts in the makeup of those districts, but also a lack of connection from the busy liberals and a lot of satisfaction with the way the NDP has handled the COVID-19 pandemic. In all the elections that we've had here in British Columbia in this century, this is the first one where you have a sitting premier with an approval rating higher than 60%. Gordon Campbell never had that in 2005, 2009. Christy Clark didn't have it back in 2017. So you start with an emotional advantage because of the pandemic handling that is very difficult to deal with uh, for anybody who wants to dethrone you. Yeah, I think we saw that in the results. Uh, quick top-level results for anyone who didn't uh, see the actual outcome of this. So the presuming these all hold throughout the mailing ballots come in, uh, it'll be 55 NDP seats to 29 Liberals with three Green seats. And the popular vote broke down 45% NDP, 35% Liberal with 15% on the Greens. The big story in that is the NDP were able to gain, and the Liberals fell quite a bit, while the Green Party more or less held steady, even if the geographic distribution of the Green vote changed a bit. Well, there's a couple of things that are definitely crucial here if you're comparing the results uh, of this election with the one that we had back in 2017. The number of uh, conservative candidates was roughly the same. I think it was the effect that they had in the writings where they ran. And also, I think there's a fundamental difficulty with the Liberals because of the uh, lack of connectivity in places uh, where we had candidates who retired. Langley is a great example, Langley East as well, of areas where you just couldn't get enough traction, certainly not at the level that those seats used to vote for the Liberals. And that lack of connectivity is showing itself in the very close races that are right now tilting towards the NDP. Yeah, I went through, actually, because I was curious how the BC Conservatives done, because we largely wrote them off, Scott and I, during the campaign they ran 19 candidates, largely in the Fraser Valley, but some in the Peace Rivers and a couple actually in like Vancouver Falls Creek and Surrey Cloverdale and Richmond, Queensboro. Outside Metrovan and the island, so the Fraser Valley, the interior, all of their candidates got 9 or 10% or above. In the Peace Rivers, they got 30 and 31 and 35% and were second place to the BC Liberals who were scoring like 50%. The NDP is a non-factor up there. Those are the two safest seats for the BC Liberals. But throughout the Valley, they were posting between 10 and like 18% in Chilliwack. And these are largely the difference between the NDP and Liberal votes in the end, at least as it stands right now. Langley is an interesting case because uh, the level of support for the Conservatives this year is roughly the same as it was back in 2013. And in that election, Mary Pollack uh, carried that seat fairly easily. So it's also a little bit of a shift between the BC Liberals and voters who supported the BC Liberals looking at the NDP as an option. That being said, it's been 
a few years since that particular election and you have to factor in demographic changes, but it's definitely not the same staying power that the candidates from the BC Liberals used to have. We're still trying to figure out if Michael Lee is going to hold on to, their, to, to his seat. Sam Sullivan was defeated. Mary Pollack was defeated. Jas Johal was defeated. It's definitely time for renewal, uh, not only because the election was lost, but because you also lo- lost a lot of familiar faces on election night. Yeah, in past elections, the BC Conservatives have sometimes gotten up around this level in some writings, but that hasn't been as problematic for the Liberals outside of one or two particular examples. Uh, there's a by-election that they lost a while ago back in the Valley where the Conservative votes but was actually quite impactful. But normally the strength of the Liberal brand has been enough to carry them over and a small percentage going to the Conservatives and in this period of weakness and lack of connectivity with the voters, that just wasn't the case anymore. And there were a few other parties that kind of jumped out of nowhere as well, or at least individual candidates. The Christian Heritage Party actually posted a couple strong results for what is otherwise a really fringe extremist party. Their candidate, Laura Lynn Thompson, who has previously run for the People's Party in Burnaby South, my riding. She scored 9% in Abbotsford South. The Christian Heritage Party also got 13% in Stickine. And up there, the Rural BC Party posted 11%. And I don't know anything about them other than they think Rural BC is important. (laughs) Well, we we also had a couple of... Oh, sorry. I was just going to joke. Isn't that the job of the Liberals to think that Rural BC is the most important thing? (laughs) It is. And that has been the case for a while. The other wildcard that I was thinking about was Wexit. And it was a bit interesting to see that a couple of days before the election, they essentially said, even though they're listed as Wexit candidates, uh, they're running as independent separatists, whatever that means. So there's a little bit of a friction there between the actual Wexit movement, if it actually is a movement here in British Columbia. And we just went through the election in Saskatchewan where the Buffalo Party is not going to get more than 3% of the vote. They also ran in mostly rural ridings. So maybe that'll put this whole idea of seceding West Canada to rest. Yeah, I think West Wexit BC only ran two candidates, maybe three or four. They got 3% in Boundary, Similkameen, and 177 votes in uh, Peace River South. Only a couple percent there. Really yeah. a non-factor. Yeah, Wetsit is barely coherent in Alberta and is utterly incoherent in BC. So I, I'm not surprised to see them not doing well. On the other hand, I'm not sure they're going to go away because almost definitionally, if you're running for the Wetsit party, you don't exactly have a keen sense of what the political landscape is. They'll be like the cons- the communists always sitting around. By the way, while we're talking about fringe parties, I don't think a single communist candidate got more than 1% of the vote in their riding. Yeah. So the funniest thing is actually Vancouver Hastings, where the libertarians managed to beat out the communists in the votes, which it's not what you'd expect in that riding. Getting back to the major parties, though, I think one of the big things that stood out is as you look across the province, the Greens did well and started to do elsewhere. So they have slightly lower percent of the vote than they did in the last election, but they ran fewer candidates, so it's not as unexpected. Out of the 87 ridings in the province, they were second in 14 and are leading or won three of them. Sonia Fersenow and Adam Olson clearly run their, ran, 
clearly won their seats where I think you and I, Scott, were both a bit more skeptical that they could keep it up. Well, I did uh, on our last episode when we were doing predictions, I think I had the Greens at two, which was those two. I thought first now was probably going to win hers and Olsen was the favorite, but in a much tougher fight. So I'm not surprised to see them hold it, but I guess a little surprised the margin was so much in their favor. The other issue that we need to look into is what is going to happen with the mail-in ballots. Most people who voted by mail may have done this before the debate, and they didn't get a chance to know Sonia now. So there may be a lower level of support for the Greens from the mail-in ballots. And we also know that the mail-in ballots have an advantage for incumbents. If you have a candidate who's running again and you know their name and you voted for them the last time, it's a little bit easier to write their name on the ballot, especially if you got one of the early ballots that didn't have the candidates' names. So that could play a role in the West Vancouver Sea to Sky seat. If we have a, a certainly larger number of ballots that were cast by mail favoring the Liberals and not the Greens. I think we also saw in your polling, Mario, as well as some of the other firms that were out there, that the NDP held a significant and larger lead in the mail-in ballots, up in some cases 20 points rather than 10. And if that plays out, we could see, I think, I did a rough math the other night, like a 3 to 4% swing from the Liberals to the NDP. And that puts six different ridings that the Liberals are currently in the lead in, into the orange column, things like Abbotsford Mission, Fraser Nicola, Kamloops North Thompson is actually only 790 votes ahead for the Liberals. Surrey White Rock is 4%. Vancouver Langara is just at the edge at 5%. And Vernon Monashi. NDP could be moving into the interior as well. Uh, that is definitely possible. One thing we've seen in Saskatchewan, when we went to bed on election night, the size of the victory for the Saskatchewan party was astonishing. And part of the situation was the NDP at some point in the night were only at nine seats. Now that we've started to count the ballots that came through the mail, they're up to 13. So you could have a situation in a sparsely populated place such as Saskatchewan, where a difference of a couple of points in the mail-in ballots results in you getting more seats. We had a lot of more people in BC who voted by mail, and the NDP made it a point to ask their voters to request their ballot and to vote as, as early as they could. Yeah, we could see a little bit of a swing that actually takes the number of seats for the NDP a little bit higher than it was on election night. So I think all of this that we've been talking about all points to one thing, and that is the Liberal Party is in a lot of trouble compared to where it was four years ago. So why did they do so poorly overall? And why does it and why is it likely that they may do even more poorly once the mail-in ballots are in? Well, the one thing that is definitely crucial here is that the pandemic took away the thing that they do best, which is getting the vote out on election day. Not a lot of people who want to get a ride from a stranger to the polls in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. The opportunity to get to know the leader was also absent and not a lot of opportunities to actually meet and greet, to have the candidates shaking your hands, kissing babies, doing all the stuff that they used to do. But the other issue that is also crucial is a difficulty in trying to establish an emotional connection with the electorate. Even in the television ads, you saw Andrew Wilkinson on the background. He's talking to a crowd, and then there's a voice that is telling you, Andrew Wilkinson has a plan for everything that you need to do, and Andrew Wilkinson this, and Andrew Wilkinson that. 
he never actually looks at the camera. He never talks to the voters directly. And that is not the way in which you establish an emotional connection. Contrast this to the 2013 ads where Christy Clark is looking into the camera directly and saying that we've made some mistakes, but there's plenty of sacrifices and many things that will happen sooner. I think that was a missed opportunity to try to establish that emotional connection. You can throw out as many policy ideas as you can, but if people are satisfied with the pandemic and they don't look at the government that is in place right now as a government that can be trusted, it's not going to happen. I think they misread some of the early research that was conducted on how much people despised, allegedly, the idea that we were having an election in the middle of this pandemic. And they went for it for the first three weeks of the campaign, and it did not move the needle. I think we saw in the debate that difficulty Wilkinson had connecting with people. I have found it very robotic. And even at the end, he had to throw in the I'm Andrew Wilkinson, I'm asking for your vote. And it's that's obvious. We know who you're on stage with a like label under you, you don't need to add that. So he had that difficulty. And that bleds through. But I think one of the other challenges that we haven't talked much about is financially, we are operating under a very different regime than ever before. The BC Liberals had to fundraise the same as the NDP and Greens by going to small individual donors, and we've been seeing them struggle. Now, I think we saw through the campaign that the Liberals were willing to spend and go into debt to do what they had to do, but it had to be somewhat weighing on their mind. And I'll be interesting. I'll be interested in looking at the finance returns when those come out through elections BC at how much the Liberals actually spent in this campaign, because. They definitely threw a lot into Facebook ads, but it's not clear that they got their return on it. And maybe in the end, they didn't actually spend as much or they spent a lot through Central, but the local campaigns did not have the ability to spend what they would in a typical BC liberal election year. That is definitely true. I think there's a connection in the way in which you're used to running a campaign back in 2013 and 2017 with the amount of money at your disposal, mostly coming out of corporate donations, with the situation that they had to face now when you have to fundraise the old-fashioned way, the same as any other party. It's definitely more complicated, and I think we saw a little bit of that in the way in which certain controversies were handled. I thought the whole situation with the Jane Thornthwaite remarks during the Ralph Sultan Zoom roast, that could have been handled in five hours, and they let it fester for three or four days until the day in which they're actually launching their own platform. And then it becomes a question of why didn't Wilkinson do something about it earlier? It's definitely not a a very coherent campaign. I think that was also part of the problem. And it's the kind of thing that getting the best talent, uh, which usually arrives when you have a lot of money at your disposal, would have made this a little bit easier. You run the campaigns with the team that you have and the team that they have this time around appears to have missed the mark on a couple of things. Yeah, I think it's the case that usually it takes one or two elections after a new set of rules come in for parties to really adapt to them. I know the federal parties had a bunch of trouble adapting to the fundraising rules once corporate union donations were banned at that level. So I'm not entirely surprised to see the liberals struggle with it a bit, but I figure they would have been able to do more to spin up a a more effective fundraising operation in the three years we've had. It just didn't really seem to materialize for one reason or another, despite the fact that 
it's a coalition party that's half made up of federal conservatives who really pioneered the, the small dollar donation fundraising machine in Canada. It turns out it's not just half conservatives. Mario, you did some exit polling that seems to suggest the Free Enterprise Coalition is somewhat crumbling into who makes up the BC Liberal vote. Do you want to speak to that? Yeah, gladly. This is something that I was very curious about. And, and kudos to Stuart Press out of SFU who suggested this when we talked uh, a week before the election. It's an important indicator of the strength of the coalition. And what we saw in our exit polling was that it wasn't surprising to see 60% of federal conservatives voting for the BC Liberals. A few maybe were happy with the COVID-19 handling and voted for the NDP. A few voted for the Greens. There's always the aspect of you might be conservative federally, but not like the BC Liberal candidate in your writing, and that's fine. But what was quite surprising was to see that only 31% of federal liberal voters voted for the BC Liberals. 25% actually went to the NDP. So you have almost a 50-50 split when it comes to who liberal voters at the federal level chose when it came to this BC election. And it's definitely problematic for the future of the party. Wilkinson Christy Clark, to a lesser extent, Gordon Campbell, used to be certainly were seen as more uh, akin to the federal liberals than the federal conservatives necessarily. And it hasn't really got them to the place where they have to go, especially now that the, that the federal liberals are actually more popular. We can't go back to the status of the federal liberal party in 2011 under, under Michael Ignatieff, where they get 13% of the vote. They got 35% of the vote with Justin Trudeau back in 2015, and they held on to some of those seats in 2019. So it's no longer a party that is forgotten. It's actually the government, and it's the number two ranked party at the federal level in British Columbia. And it's not looking at the busy liberals as their home when it comes to provincial politics. And arguably, the federal liberals have shifted left under Trudeau from where they were in the past. And so trying to keep those within the BC liberal tent gets harder, many of them more naturally fit with John Horgan, moderate left, center left party. Yeah, yeah. the way John Horgan's positioned himself is definitely, I think, made it easier for a lot of liberals to vote NDP this time. But this also does match my anecdotal observations of how the BC liberals have been working. It definitely seems to be a, a multi-year trend where the liberals are increasingly resembling just a conservative party rather than a mixed conservative liberal party where positioning on a whole bunch of issues generally I think it's been more aligned on the conservative side as well as the rural urban divide has been particularly noteworthy. Did you see much of the rural urban divide there Mario? Yeah there's a little bit of that I think part of the situation is on voting patterns that take a little bit longer to percolate. I think we saw it in Peace River, for instance. There's nobody looking at the NDP as an option. It's not as if the people of Northern British Columbia are not happy with the handling of the pandemic, but they're not as happy to say, okay, let's just allow these new Democrats to now represent us at the legislature. That is part of the problem. And I think there's also an opportunity to see if this is a redrawing of the map. If now the Fraser Valley starts to look more like Metro Vancouver when it comes to the voting patterns and not as much as the southern interior, 
the size of waves in elections is also uh, something that you can't prepare for. Back in 2015, the federal liberals got the sit-in mission. They ended up losing it in 2019, but the size of Trudomania was big enough to encompass the Fraser Valley. And in a way, this is what is happening right now if the results hold up in, in Chilliwack and in Langley for the NDP. It's the size of the wave that gets a little bit further out from Metro Vancouver and starts to reach closer to the southern interior. Yeah, and I, I think a large part of that has to do with the kind of demographic changes and the fact that more people are now living out in the valley as opposed to in Vancouver itself or the kind of Metro Vancouver area. And kind of the spillovers from Vancouver's housing problems have created, I think, a, a demographic that's not nearly as conservative as it used to be or rural-oriented as it used to be out in the valley, and that does make it a lot more competitive. But it also means that the general positioning of the liberals doesn't necessarily speak to the valley the way it used to. My favorite hot take on Twitter was the pointing out the irony of the BC liberal housing policies or the failure on that file on, in that years, forcing that demographic shift to their own detriment in the long term. But I think we also saw the NDP play very strategically to the valley. They talked about getting sky they talked about getting SkyTrain to Langley. They talked about the importance of expanding transport transit options out in the broader Fraser Valley. So they did speak to those areas in much the same way in twenty as in twenty seventeen when they talked about like eliminating the tolls where they just went after Surrey hard. So this time they just kept Surrey and broadened that base a little bit further out. That was one thing they did a lot better than the Liberals, I think, was actually speak to the various areas they were campaigning in. The, the, the Liberal had a much more, I think, general high-level platform where they weren't out there in all the writings nearly as much doing writing-specific announcements at all. And what did a, what, $8 billion of new infrastructure spending? That, that should have gotten sprinkled around a lot more than it actually did in their campaign. It also speaks of the complexities of the race. We had elections, I remember 2009, this is happening right after the global financial crisis. So obviously the number one issue was the economy and the campaign was based on let's keep Gordon Campbell as the economic manager of the province and not let the NDP back in. 2017, it was mostly about housing and I think that led to the way in which the NDP recovered, particularly in Metro Vancouver. But this time around, you had very different groups of people being worried about the very different things. It was still housing for the 18 to 34-year-olds. It was more likely to be the economy and jobs uh, for the Generation Xers. And it was more likely to be healthcare for the baby boomers. And that forces the parties, if they do it properly, to talk to all of the groups and to do campaigns that are more regional. Now, obviously, the advantages of incumbency are staggering. You can go to a place and actually make specific promises that are going to be more appealing to that group. And it's not something that the liberals could do. I think this is why they were forced very early on to use the, the wild card, which was the reduction or the uh, holiday on the PST, which in a different campaign, they probably would have announced closer to election day. But when we were already mailing that our, our ballots, they essentially said, let's throw this Hail Mary pass right now. Yeah, that's, I think, something else that goes like the structural changes in politics is that it's, I think, increasingly hard to win an election on taxes. 
and, and cut in them. Like the, people in VC are struggling in a lot of areas, and I don't think there's anyone who really sees the marginal tax rate or the PST as the big barrier to them having a better life. And that means the liberals, I think, are going to have to rethink how they approach a lot of these issues in quite big ways. And they're they're not going to be competitive in Metro Vancouver or the Valley for that matter until they reassess a lot of those things. And that doesn't necessarily mean they need to become NDP-like, but it does, I think, mean rediscover more the liberal side of the equation and taking their party values and figuring out how to refine them or find a new model in how to apply those values to the current sets of problems facing BC. And one of the things... Oh, go ahead. Finish. Yeah, because this is not 2005 anymore. Like, it's just you, you can't really run a campaign on that and actually have it speak to very many people. And they should be very cautious about trying to run a playbook that's clearly no longer working. Well, and one of the things the liberals tried to run on, particularly in the previously close Maple Ridge ridings in Vancouver. False Creek with Sam Sullivan was this tough on crime pushback on dangerous homelessness, essentially mixing discussions about the overdose crisis as well as these other issues. And that seems to have been largely rejected by all of those voters. And one of the things I saw in your poll, Mario, was a question about whether this campaign was viewed by voters as a positive or negative campaign. And from my point of view, that bit of the BC Liberal platform was a bit more negative, attacking the NDP for what they said was inaction or warehousing of homeless people. How did BC voters see the different parties playing the election out? Yeah, there's definitely a better positive reaction for the campaigns of the NDP and the Greens. You know, even if you didn't vote for the Greens, we have more than 50% of voters in the election who say that was a positive campaign. Slightly higher numbers for the NDP, but the Liberal campaign split views. You have roughly two out of five who say it was a positive campaign and almost 50% who say it was a negative campaign. And I think part of this is the emotional reaction to the leader, the difficulties that they had, particularly all of those fires that they had to put out, even if they did it fairly slowly during the campaign, but also the actual tone of the things that were being discussed. And and this also shows a, a, a lack of, of empathy with specific uh, sectors uh, of the British Columbia population, especially on issues such as crime. It wasn't an issue that was really climbing the charts when we ask people. I've certainly had it at a higher level when it comes to the top issues facing British Columbia, specifically after the Surrey Six murders or when we had uh, a lot of homicides in the city of Vancouver a few years ago. This is not the situation that we find ourselves in right now. And trying to do something that is appealing more to a municipal type of campaign is not going to get you your votes. I think there are ways to do campaigns locally, but if your answer to do things locally is to suddenly suggest that the mayor and the Parks Board of Vancouver can do things and that the mayor of Surrey is not handling the police reform, you should be running for mayor, not for premier. Andrew Wilkinson for mayor in 
2022 is a bold prediction. <laughs> We're talking about the cities. One of the things I noticed, and we talked a little bit about the Greens' difficulty in the metro areas. One of their stronger results, they did post a couple second places, I think, in Metro Van, uh, New West in particular. But for example, they only ran in one or two of the seats in Richmond, I believe. And arguably, because of their non-presence, the NDP was the only non-liberal option on the ballot. And they were able to get ahead of the BC Liberal candidate. Now, I'm not totally always in favor of vote-splitting arguments since their, the turnout was so low, so a lot of people maybe just stayed home. But when you only have two options on the ballot and you get into that poll booth, into that booth, if you don't like the BC Liberals and you don't have a BC Green, you're probably just going to check the NDP at that point. That is what is happening in Richmond South Centre. The, there's a difference that is pretty tiny when it comes to the totals for Henry Yao of the NDP and Alexa Liu from the BC Liberal Party. It's a situation that probably would have been different if you had a green candidate somewhere in there, in the same way that it changes when you have a conservative candidate in areas where the BC Liberals do well. But it forces you to start thinking about a future where there's fewer parties. Certainly, we had fewer parties this time than in other BC elections. And obviously, there's not going to be a way to make sure that everybody merges. But when we ask people about possible mergers, the NDP voters would welcome the Green voters with open arms. The Green voters are like, wait a second, I don't know if I want to make this happen. We might have a little bit of a larger voice in the legislature if we merge, but I'm not entirely convinced. The BC Liberal voters are the ones who are saying we have to merge with the BC Conservatives or create some sort of new entity if we want to be more successful in the next election. That might be part of it, some sort of rebrand. But first of all, it's figuring out how to connect with voters, which is essentially what was missing in the last campaign. With the Liberals and Conservatives, I, I have trouble actually seeing that going ahead, or at least a formal merger, because... If you're a BC conservative at this point, that, that's been a very deliberate decision to step away from the main vehicle for right of center politics in the party, in the province. And I have trouble seeing what can be offered to change that back in a way that doesn't ultimately undermine the broader structure of the party in a way that ends up losing you the liberals. I think it took about a decade for reform and progressive conservatives to finally merge and it was the watching Kretchen majority after Kretchen majority that finally I think did it. Right. I guess but, maybe we're in for another decade. Yeah, but both of those were actually posting seats to the leg to the to Parliament and had, you know, presence in multiple parts of the, the country. Like the BC Conservatives were getting ten percent in the most of the writings they ran in. N nowhere near electing anyone. Like it's it's just quite a different situation than a case where both parties are repre represented and if you could combine them, you could actually get a significantly increased share of things. That's a good point. It's not a situation where you can look at the electoral map, which is what the federal conservatives did and said, wouldn't it be nice if we could have this little bit of Atlantic Canada, this little bit of Quebec and all the seats from reform? and maybe build a party that can make us competitive in the next election. And it happened. Right now, there's definitely 
more to gain from the liberal standpoint as far as ending with that competition. But the BC conservatives don't really offer that much when it comes to a negotiation table. Yeah, the, the only thing that you really promise is not to split the vote. But at that point, just a stronger liberal party that fits a lot of its flaws already more or less gets you that in terms of being more electorally competitive. Yeah, I don't really see the value proposition here for those two parties to merge at all. One of the other challenges that's going to be facing the Liberals going forward is at some point, I believe, before the next general election, there's going to be another redistribution of seats. And every time that happens, we look at the province as it stands, and there's something like 18,000 voters in uh, Peace River South versus registered voters versus many metro van ridings have over twice as many, potentially more. And so it's going to be very tempting for the NDP to expand the legislature to justifiably give better representation to metro Vancouver and the island because there is in law, and they could change this law, but it would look crassly partisan, uh, a requirement to protect certain ridings. I think it's about 15 or 17 in the north so that they don't get too big because geographically you don't want half the province being one riding. A bigger legislature with more seats in Metro Van in the island does not look good to this BC Liberal Party at all. Oh no, that could probably... Well, not probably, certainly be detrimental for their chances in the next election. It's not the kind of situation that they want to see. And, and I think you're, and it's not something that would look well on the NDP. I think there's a situation now where because of the victory in this election, because of the majority government, we're going to stop talking about the 1990s and what the NDP did in the 1990s. If you want to start your legacy as a government on the right foot, this is one way to to not uh, screw it up before everything happens. It's the last thing we need is some some sort of gerrymandering exercise that would throw off voters and and make us definitely more doubtful about uh, democratic institutions in the province. At least in this province, Elections BC ultimately draws the map and they are fully independent. So it's just about setting the rules. I did just pull up the full list of registered voters, and it actually, it's, it's the Kelowna ridings that have the most voters at over 53,000. And like I said, in uh, Peace River South, you have 18,000 people. And so I don't know how we can justifiably have that as a province where you have such disparity between how much some people's votes count. Yeah, I, I more or less agree. And yeah, I do think quite likely we'll see an increased size of the legislature coming forward. And yeah, it's the sort of thing that if the liberals are able to rebuild and become competitive in urban BC again, I I can see that minimizing the disadvantage to that quite a bit, especially depending on how the boundaries get drawn. And if that leads to more ridings out in the valley, for example, because that's the parts of the metro or parts of the lower mainland that are drawn more than say city of Vancouver, that may be something that a rebuilt liberal party might actually be able to take advantage of. But that is also very contingent on the liberals being able to rebuild, which, you know, there's no guarantee of. So often the first step to rebuilding your political party is the leadership race. And it was unclear if 
if or when we were going to have a leadership race on election night, as Andrew Wilkinson gave a sort of non-concession speech. I think he admitted the the NDP had the likely chance that they would form government, but he didn't at any re- play point really say he lost or was stepping down. And it came in a very brief, awkward press conference a day or two later that he said he would resign in the near future and get a leadership race going. And it sounded like he was planning to stay on as interim leader, but now it sounds more like he's leaving that up to his caucus to decide what they want. If they'll keep him around, he'll, he's happy to stay. He's also happy to leave, I'm sure. And that raises the question of the rampant speculation of who comes next. And it is rampant. I think there's a there's always a chance to look into things from the standpoint of the previous race. And I'm not talking about 2017, but I'm talking about Gordon Campbell's resignation. And as fate would have it, this gets announced in the morning. And who is handling the microphones at CKNW but one Christy Clark? <laughs> and she says, I'm not interested in this. Thank you for asking. And a few weeks later, she was interested in it. And she ended up winning that leadership race. So the early stages, especially in a situation like this one, are definitely crucial. We know that Todd Stone, Michael Lee would be interested in this. Mike DeYoung has ruled it out. Diane Watts ruled it out on election night when we were at CTV. But you don't really know whether this is going to hold or not. Also, depending on the way in which the whole process is handled. If we are in a situation where they use the same system of ranked ballots that get somebody who finishes in third place or fourth place with 15% and ends up becoming leader a few rounds later, then you lose the cleansing effect of the actual conventions and the people moving from one room to the other. It's something that helps for party unity. And I just don't think we saw that party unity when Christy Clark left and, and, and Andrew Wilkinson became leader. Here's somebody who reminded us consistently during the campaign that he was a doctor. He was also a lawyer and he was never giving a very prominent ministry under Christy Clark. So it wasn't particularly pleasant as far as transitions are concerned. Yeah, the, the shape of the leadership race, I think, is going to matter quite a bit. I don't think they will be changing the rules at all. I think they'd actually probably need some, a party convention to actually change how that's set up, because I believe it's set out in the party's constitution or bylaws, and that's I think, unlikely to change. So I think the bigger question is, can someone manage to establish a dominant enough position that they can place first or a solid second when the ranked ballots start to be counted and collect up the rest for a decisive win or not. One of the interesting possibilities, and you mentioned that Diane Watts had somewhat ruled herself out, but you ran that as a counterfactual question on your exit poll, Mario, just just for fun. This kind of reminds me of when you put uh, Kennedy Stewart's name in a poll, and then a couple weeks later, after he w- did really well in that poll, he announced his run for mayor of Vancouver. Are you trying to get Diane Watts to run for leader? <laughs> <laughs> Not really. This really started. I was curious to figure out how people would feel about the campaign if it had been handled with a different person. And I think we have to imagine, let's say, for the sake of argument, the Ralph Sultan rose happens and the joke is made. How would Diane Watts had reacted to that? How would she had answered the question related to white privilege, somebody with that experience and with a, a different type of empathy towards voters? 
And that's what made me curious about how would we, how would voters have reacted to this? Would, would we have a liberal party that was more dominant if Diane Watts had been the leader? And the answer is yes. We have 39% of respondents to the survey who said they would have voted for the liberals with Diane Watts. So this means that you're getting the liberal vote, which is right now a 35%. You get four points more, which are coming mostly from the NDP, but also from the Green Party. It uh, comes in specific places. You do a little bit better in, in southern BC. You do significantly better in Metro Vancouver. You don't make a dent in the island. And I think that's also important to note. It's not as if Diane Watts makes the island suddenly competitive and you can paint a few seats red, but it would have been a significantly closer election. And you have to wonder whether the NDP would have acted this way if they had a leader who was already better known and who was not going to have a chance to do things differently. I think the fact that Wilkinson wasn't particularly known when the campaign began certainly makes things easier and probably helps us explain why they chose to do this now and not in a few months. And on that, I hope the liberals actually move forward pretty quick on getting a new leader in place because they are going to, I think regardless of who ends up running for that thing, going to have to introduce them to British Columbians in a big way. And that never really happened with Andrew Wilkinson very effectively. So as much time as possible to get that going would be something that's needed before the 2024 election. I'm hearing a lot of liberals call for the opposite, actually, to take their time. There's four years till the next election. Let's figure out what we are as a party. There's a weird amount of speculation about whether the party should change its name. Yeah. That, oh, yeah, the name change. I get that it's probably not worthwhile, but I like them wasting a bunch of time on a name change because it's almost rather dumb. <laughs> yeah, I think a name change would be a big mistake. We've been talking throughout the night here on why or on how the liberals are struggling because they are well not really a party that connects with the federal liberals very much anymore and this would seem to be more going in that direction of moving consistently to be more just a general conservative party rather than a coalitional party and mo moving away from that kind of lib partially liberal party that they are and what I've heard is places out in you know, rural BC or, or other places had their campaigns got flat for the liberal name and whatnot. Why went? Why aren't there? Why isn't there a conservative option or, or, and stuff like that? But that's not the parts of the province that the liberals are really struggling with. And I think the parts of the province that would be most enthusiastic about dropping the liberal name and, I don't know, become the BC party or something <laughs> uh, are not the parts of the province where the liberals actually have to rebuild their presence in. And a, a name that doesn't... And I think the liberal name, even though it's had a few rough years, is something that under a rebuilt party would actually be an asset, not a detriment. It's worth noting that the British Columbia party is currently registered to Graham Gifford of, of Burnaby. So he could become very rich if the Liberals decided that's what they wanted to name their party. Yeah. Or, or they become the British Columbia party and just abbreviate it to BC party anyway. Elections BC is pretty sticky about those types of <laughs> yeah. things. Although there is a party called for British Columbia as well. 
I, I'm guessing they probably aren't going to rebrand to that. But yeah, I, I can see the point about wanting to take a little time figuring out what the party needs to be. And I think that is very important and that should affect who the leadership choices. But at the same time, I think parties that spend a lot of time without a permanent leader, it is often to their detriment and getting that corrected soon would be a good thing. And yeah, there's, I think needs to be a lot of soul searching on the part of the liberals and a lot of focusing on where the party went wrong over the last two elections. And I really can't see any other way than it has to move back towards the center and be a party that actually is a lot more urban focused and, yeah, it's going to annoy a lot of, I think, the more rural members of the party who form a, a lot of the base, but they're already in the party and they're not really going to go anywhere. And even if they, even if 5% of them split off, it's, or 5 to 10% of them don't stick around for the next election, better they be down 5% in the interior and up t- 10 to 15% in the uh, cities than the other way around. And I'm quite worried that Parties without strong leadership and without a vision can often default to continuing to speak to the base, even though those are almost definitionally the people you don't need to win over and aren't where the next 10% of the vote is going to come from. And without a permanent leader in place that has that sort of long-term vision and strategic thought, I, I don't think the liberals are going to be able to pull out of their current rot very easily. That raises another question. Should there be somebody from the outside trying to become the next leader of the BC Liberals? Christy Clark suggested in an interview today that it has to be somebody from the outside, that usually the best candidates don't come from caucus. Even though she was an MLA for a while, she wasn't elected as an MLA when she ran for the leadership. So Is there somebody out there, maybe a federal politician, whether liberal or conservative, or somebody who served in municipal politics who wants to take a crack at this? I was I've been thinking about that and it's hard to imagine who. Maybe someone will pop up. But unlike in 2015 in Alberta, where the NDP won and the conservatives federally and around the country looked at it and went, Oh, there's a clear path to victory. Here, we just need to get the wild rose and the progressive conservatives together under the right leadership and force it through. And it looked difficult, but Jason Kenney was out of a job federally pretty much and had ample time on his hand. Now you have federal conservatives who are arguably on the cusp of power or can at least taste it. They see a path versus looking at a lot of work to do in BC without the clear oh, we just have to unite the BC Liberals and the there is no party for them to unite. They yeah. need to steal votes back. So it's a much less appealing job, and I don't know so who wants to do that work. I, I, I could see a situation where James Moore comes in and he could be an effective leader. I think he would actually get the strategic realities of this and position the party. Now, he also has a young family, and I don't think has any interest in re-entering politics anytime soon. But he would be a good outside choice on the municipal front. I can think of a couple councillors who, from various parts of Metro Vancouver, who I think who are on the underside and get the challenges, and who are um, you know aligned with the BC Liberals. But you know, I, 
Dylan Trudrout in Delta, I, I think, yeah. is a young dynamic person who I think understands the current challenges and how to place everything. But I, I don't think he has any interest in making the jump to provincial politics at this time or, or necessarily the organizational capacity to take on leadership anyway. So yeah, it, it's tough to pick out in the, an individual outsider besides, I think, James Moore, who necessarily fits that position. On the other hand, I can't... Th- there's no one in the Liberal caucus that also really is a standout of the type of Liberal I think the party actually needs to rebalance everything. So I, I don't know. It's a tough one. You know, it's a province of 5 million people. In theory, at least half of them are winnable or convincible on the... You know, marginally aligned with where the liberals in theory could be so there's going to be someone out there whether or not they actually end up running it's a different question so i'm conscious of the time and we'll definitely be coming back to watching the bc liberal leadership race over the coming four years of this podcast when things will be more stable than they've been throughout our entire term so far pretty much we started just before the 2017 election and here we are just after the 2020 election. The one thing I want to end on, though, is we now see the NDP taking 45% of the vote, one of their highest vote shares ever after Election Day, and it's arguably going to go up. Based on everything we've talked about, where are they going from here? Are we seeing somewhat of a realignment of British Columbia politics where the NDP shifts itself into a quote-unquote natural governing party of the province? I think it'll depend on what type of promises are kept. And especially when it comes to those who are fairly new to the party, there's a definitely more uh, emphasis on specific things that they didn't really campaign that hard on back in 2017, such as childcare program that is similar to the one they have in Quebec, or situations related to uh, natural resource development in a way that is environmentally friendly, but also trying to keep those two components of the NDP coalition together. You're going to have a lot of people who are pro-development, who are essentially saying to everybody, there's no change, it's still the same British Columbia where you can invest and you can do a lot of things related to natural resources, but you also elected a lot of new people, specifically younger candidates, uh, who are more likely to have that environmental bent. So keeping that coalition together when you have to make decisions related to natural resource development in some parts and also try to maintain that environmentally friendly aspect of the coalition alive is going to be a very difficult challenge. And the other one is, will we have a cabinet that is actually going to look like British Columbia? There was, uh, There's a lot of candidates who won their seats who are minorities. There might be an opportunity to do something that is a little more meaningful when it comes to the voices, not only in the legislature, because the voters have already taken, that, uh, taken care of that decision, but ultimately on the decision makers that are going to put forward the policies that will guide us for the next four years. It would be interesting to watch what the cabinet looks like and does it represent the demographic changes that we're talking about that helped them win those seats in the places where they didn't expect. Just a quick note while you're mentioning demographics, there was a good piece in the TAI talking about how the legislature is not any more diverse after the election, unfortunately came out largely as white as it was, and that's still slightly whiter than the province. 
Now, a number of outlets did point out we have our first turbaned or turban-wearing member of the legislature, which seems odd for BC that it's taken this long, but here we are. Not a big step forward on diversity, though the NDP caucus, I believe, is pretty close to gender parity, at least. Uh, so circling back to the question about the NDP and whether they establish themselves as the national government party, in addition to the factors Mario mentioned and the difficulties with the internal coalition of the NDP, the other or the two other factors I can see are, are big questions that are still open about this is how much of the NDP's current fairly moderate, just you know, center-left positioning that we've seen over the last three years and in this election was a function of their actual governing temperament or was a necessity of being in a minority government and needing to maintain that balance in the legislature and then grow that into a majority. And then there's also the question of what happens to the lib can the liberals rebuild into their and recapture that natural governing party and actually seriously contest that next election? Or is it going to be a case where the liberals' problems that we spend a lot of time talking about continue onwards and don't get solved? In which case, yeah, I think the more realignment or a shift in the underlying structures is more likely. So lots for us to pay attention to. Another week and a bit before elections BC starts counting the mail-in ballots, they are aiming to have them all counted by November 16th. So by mid-November, we'll be able to fully dive in again on these numbers and see how much swings and how much moves. Until then, and hopefully we'll see more polls from you soon. Mario, where can people follow you on Twitter and find details of all of the work you do? Thank you. I'm at, at Mario underscore Canseco on Twitter. And our surveys are always available and never behind a paywall <laughs> at researchgo.ca. We're going to be doing some states before the U.S. election, some of the battleground states, and we'll publish those findings on Monday before the election in the U.S. Mario, thanks for uh, joining us tonight. My pleasure. This was a lot of fun. <laughs> thanks so much, guys. Thank you. Thank you. And that has been Politoast. Find links to everything we talked about at politoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Politoast is a production of Legend Boot Media and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Wash your hands and stay home. Thanks for listening. <laughs>